I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest today is my colleague Deborah Friedel, contributing editor at the LRB, who has a piece in the current issue on Dorothy Thompson, the first American journalist to be expelled from Nazi Germany. The piece is a response to two books, The Newspaper Access, Six Press Barons Who Enabled Hitler by Catherine Olmsted, and Last Call at the Hotel Imperial, The Reporters Who Took on a World at War by Deborah Cohen. Hello, Deborah. Thank you very much for joining me again. Hello, Tom. So shall we begin with that that moment in 1934 when Dorothy Thompson was expelled by the Nazis? How did that come about? Yeah, so um, in 1931, when Dorothy Thompson's a reporter from America, mostly based in Central Europe, um, she gets a coup after more than seven years of trying to get an interview with Hitler. She's granted an audience, and this is rare. Hitler doesn't usually let foreign reporters talk to him. And she's told she has to submit questions in advance, only three. She's very nervous. She goes to talk to him. And immediately, she just thinks, this man's a busted flush. No way. He's hysterical, she says. He pounds the table. She can't get a coherent answer out of him. And she writes uh, an article that then becomes a book that pretty much says not to worry. This man isn't going anywhere. And she also implies uh, that he's homosexual, which might well be the bit that annoys the Nazis more than anything else. It's vague, so we can conjecture. There's another theory that the Nazis didn't like that she had sometimes contributed uh, to Jewish publications. But almost certainly it's because of, of this book that she published. And how had she got to this? position to be the, the one reporter who was able to get an interview with Hitler. So she's born in 1893 in upstate New York. Her father's a Methodist minister from Durham. He moved to New York State to minister to English and German immigrants. Uh, her mother dies when she's very young, almost certainly from septicemia caused by a botched illegal abortion. The father remarries Dorothy Thompson doesn't get along with her stepmother. She's sent to Chicago to live with relatives. She's one of very few women at the time to go to university. And when she graduates, she works for the women's suffrage movement. American women aren't granted the right to vote until the 19th Amendment's ratified in 1920. And when that happens, I think it's possible she she doesn't really know what to do with herself, and she decides... Uh, She's going to go to Europe. She's going to be a reporter. And what's interesting to me is that in some ways, she follows the same path that a young American writer now might take, where, you know, the advice that's often given to young people now is if you can't get a job at a newspaper, don't worry. What you should do is go somewhere interesting where there aren't a lot of reporters and you 
pitch to various editors willing to write a piece on spec from, you know, some hotspot. For Dorothy Thompson, what you would do is you would in person go to the Foreign Bureau, present your clips, offer to write something for free. And if the newspaper liked it, they would then print it and then pay you. And once she had enough of those, she could get a staff position. And in in 1920, I mean, there are more than 2,000 American daily newspapers. They all need reporters. Um, You know, large cities had multiple daily newspapers, and a lot of them had foreign bureau, which now in 2023 seems amazing. And the way they were set up, um, I find this interesting, is if you're, say, the Philadelphia Inquirer, you wanted to have an office where, say, in Vienna, where visiting Philadelphians felt comfortable stopping by and chatting, because often the reports you would send from Vienna would be about what was happening to Philadelphians in Vienna. And so it was a place where, as a young writer, you could just sort of show up and, and try to present yourself. And Dorothy Thompson, I mean, she had a lot of chutzpah. I mean, she wasn't above forging a travel visa using the seal from a coffee can to make it look official. She once dressed up as a Red Cross nurse in order to get an interview. She was intrepid. And now we might say morally dubious, but she got the story. So that question of how she got the interview with Hitler. So she was the head of the New York Post's Berlin Bureau. But he he agreed to do it for the Saturday Evening Post. Is there some idea that he wants that kind of family-friendly... We we, we don't know. I think it probably didn't hurt that she was married to Sinclair Lewis, that she she had a famous husband. And also, I mean, she pursued him. I mean, this is a woman who was... She was tenacious. I mean, she was used to getting famous people to talk to her. You know, she she says in the book that she'd been trying for seven years, um, you know, writing to anyone she could think of, putting pressure on contacts... Okay, so in a way, the way the article came up, the kind of this guy's not going anywhere, but actually her journalism, I mean, her instincts or whatever you want to call her experience that wanting to get the interview in the first place showed that actually her sense for what mattered politically and historically was sharper than the finished piece might suggest. Part of her problem was that she, she read Mein Kampf in German and she just thinks, how could anyone possibly go for this? And when Hitler talks to her during the interview, you know, he tells her, you know, I'm going to get into power legally. And then once that's done, I'm going to abolish the Constitution. And Dorothy Thompson says, what? You know, who would want this? I mean, she she really struggles in that moment to see how what he's saying could, could have happened. The Nazis come to power, after all, and she's still in Europe or she's back in Europe to, to report. Yeah, she, she's left and she's come back. She's back in Berlin. 1934. It's right after the the Night of the Long Knives, Hitler's chancellor, and she's given a hand-delivered letter from the Gestapo, very politely telling her that she's offended national self-respect, and they can no longer extend to her a further right of hospitality. It's basically, get out of the country now. The next morning, she's on a train to Paris, and she's seen off by the International Press Corps. This hasn't happened before. You know, such a prominent reporter from the United States or from England or from, you know, has been told to, to get out. She's seen off on the on the train. The International Press Corps sees her off on the train from Berlin to Paris and they give her flowers. And Were they commiserating or were they was it a show of solidarity? Yeah, I, I think it was a sign of support. But in, in some ways, I mean, 
it was the best thing to happen to her career. By the time she gets back to the United States, she's absolutely famous because the fact that she's been expelled. I mean, th- this is front page news across the United States. Dorothy Thompson expelled from Nazi Germany. She was already known um, as the wife of Sinclair Lewis, the novelist, and known you know, as a reporter. But this gives her a platform. She does a lecture tour across the country, and she's given a real position in American writing that not only has she not had before, but sort of no woman in American letters has had before. Was there a sense in which she was expected to be writing for for women, as it were? Was there some sense in, in which her columns were aimed at, at women readers or, or imagined women readers? Initially, when she first gets the position at the Herald Tribune, the editors of the Tribune presented to her as a column for housewives. The idea is that women shouldn't have to always be asking their husbands to explain the world to them, that Dorothy Thompson will talk to them directly. I think this is dropped pretty quickly. But that's the thought, initially, at least. It was one of the one of Sinclair Lewis's novels, maybe his first, the most famous novel, It Can't Happen Here, is about a fascist dictator taking power, a Hitler-type figure taking power in the US. And she helped him write that? We don't know exactly how much Dorothy Thompson was involved in the writing of It Can't Happen Here. She definitely read it in proof. Um, and I think almost certainly um, she was very influential um, in how Sinclair Lewis thought about the future of the United States. We don't know for sure what bits were, were his and what bits were hers. Presumably her sense of how could anyone go for this? She didn't think Germans would. And that you know, the American exceptionalism, well, and British exceptionalism as well, the idea of it couldn't happen here. And she thought it can't happen in Germany, and it had. So in that sense, if it could happen in Germany, it could happen in, in the US or anywhere else. Yeah, and indeed, once Hitler comes to power, um, it does make her a bit paranoid about America. She looks at Roosevelt as a proto-dictator. Everything he does to help Americans during the Depression freaks her out. I mean, she thinks, ah, what is he doing? This reminds me of what Hitler was doing for Germans and trying to get people back to work and establishing social security. And when she's at the Herald Tribune, you know, that, that's a Republican paper. And a lot of her columns are anti-Roosevelt. She, she looks at Roosevelt as a proto-dictator, um, as someone who she sees as, you know, looking at possibly a Nazi playbook in terms of how do you get power? How do you expand the executive branch and take total control? In almost every way, she's opposed to Roosevelt, except when it comes to foreign affairs. And that increasingly puts her at odds with the owners of the Herald Tribune. And that's because they were isolationist and she supported Roosevelt's more interventionist foreign policy. Catherine Olmsted's uh, newish book, uh, The Newspaper Access, is, is very good about this. I mean, in, in my article in the LRB, I pretty much only talk about the, the publisher, William Randolph Hearst. Um, she talks about sort of the six major publishers in both Britain and America and how most Americans in the 1920s and the 1930s got most of their news from newspapers. And the newspapers they were reading, by and large, were owned by people who very much wanted to keep America out of European entanglements and would do what they could to shape opinion pages to, to reflect their views. And their line, this is later, you know, in the 1930s, was Americans, you've fallen before for 
anti-German propaganda from England. You've before you fell for, you know, a stupid war. Don't do it again. Sometimes American newspapers would print photographs of dead American bodies from the First World War as sort of this is what happens when you don't stay out of Europe. And Dorothy Thompson increasingly is, is trying to counter what she sees happening in the American press. And Sinclair Lewis became increasingly frustrated by that and unhappy with that. Well, they divorced in 1942, that they'd been separated for a while before that. And you quote him, or you, you, as you put it in the piece, he told friends that if he were to divorce her, he'd name Hitler as co-respondent. Yeah, I, I don't go too much into this in my piece. Deborah Cohen's book, Last Call at the Hotel Imperial, um, it, it is good on the Thompson-Lewis marriage. But it, it, it was fraught. I mean, I think he saw her at the beginning of their courtship as, as very glamorous. I mean, this woman who's traveling around the world first class, interviewing famous people. But increasingly, and even after he won the Nobel Prize, he was very insecure. He would tell people he was tired of being known as Mr. Dorothy Thompson. There's a story I don't tell in my piece that he would tell probably apocryphal, but I think it points to how he understood his marriage, which is that he, he would say that once he'd been in bed and the phone rang and his side of the bed was closer to the phone, he picked it up. It's President Roosevelt. He wants to talk to Dorothy. He hands the phone to his wife and he's trapped in bed by the phone wire as she talks to Roosevelt, you know, for 20 minutes or half an hour. And, you know, he thinks he's going to suffocate while his wife talks to the president and he can't move. And he found that infuriating. And Dorothy Thompson was known as someone who loved talking about foreign affairs. E.B. White once said she was the most well-informed person in the country. And Sinclair Lewis would say he couldn't stand it. He would have a rule that was, don't talk about it. And it meant foreign affairs, the foreign situation. My least favorite Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy movie is Woman of the Year, which came out in 1942. And it's based very loosely, but it's, it's based on Dorothy Thompson. And anyone watching it at the time knew it was supposed to be Dorothy Thompson. And it's about a woman who's dazzlingly brilliant. She can carry on a conversation in multiple languages, knows everybody, knows anything, but she can't make her husband breakfast. And, you know, the course of the film is this woman has to learn how to, how to be a woman. And the real Dorothy Thompson decided to get rid of this marriage that was really difficult for her. Um, Sinclair Lewis was also famously an alcoholic. And by a few accounts, he, he hit Dorothy Thompson that he, he was physically abusive too. So having been thrown out of Nazi Germany herself, she campaigned to help get other people out who were in more danger than she ever was, including Jewish refugees and one Jew in particular, Herschel Grinspan, who had been arrested for shooting a, a German diplomat, a Nazi diplomat in Paris. Yeah, I mean, she knows that the Grinspan is personally doomed, but she sees his case as instructive. So, you know, this is a, a teenager whose family is Polish, German, they're not citizens of anywhere anymore. And as a young man, he realizes that his parents have been deported. He doesn't quite know to where. In despair, he goes to the German embassy in Paris, asks to speak to the ambassador, sort of while he's waiting, shoots a low-level 
diplomatic official and is arrested. This is before you know, France has been occupied. And it's just the excuse that the Nazis need for Kristallnacht, where the German government claims that there's been a you know, spontaneous outpouring of you know, anger and grief throughout Germany because of the murder of their official, which you know, has resulted in Jewish businesses being destroyed across the country, Jews beaten and humiliated in the streets. Some also were killed. And of course, it's a, it's a lie. There's nothing spontaneous about it. These mobs were you know, led and, and abetted by Nazis, by the police. But you know, Grinspawn is you know, a useful excuse for Kristallnacht. Dorothy Thompson writes about you know, this teenager extremely sympathetically to her readers. You know, how would you feel if you were in his position? She didn't intend, I think, to raise money for his defense, but readers sent her thousands of dollars and she sends it on to French lawyers who might be able to give him some assistance. What one thing I thought was interesting was Dorothy Thompson says, you know, please, no Jews should give money, that she sees that the Jews in Germany are being held hostage. She wants to make it clear that any money being sent to help Grinspawn is from, you know, Gentiles only, that Jews shouldn't be punished um, for trying to help him. And once war in Europe broke out, she was a fierce advocate for the US to join. Yeah, I mean, she feels a strong affinity with Britain. Um, her father is from Dur- was from Durham. She flies to London via neutral Portugal during the Blitz. She- she's reporting, and it- it's both for her column. She's also on the radio uh, quite a bit. And she wants to do two things. She wants Americans to feel more sympathetic for what English people are going through. And at the same time, she doesn't want Americans to think that the cause is hopeless, that a lot of American isolationists are telling Americans that Britain is doomed. This is what Joseph Kennedy, the American ambassador to the United Kingdom, has said. This is, the, of course, the, the father of, of JFK. He's recalled by Roosevelt. Charles Lindbergh is saying Britain is doomed. So Dorothy Thompson, it, it's a careful line she has to walk. She doesn't want Americans to think Britain's doomed exactly, but at the same time, they need to feel that Britain needs their help. And she met with Churchill, she met with the Queen, but those weren't interviews, presumably, or were they? I mean, she wasn't... She, she doesn't report them as interviews. I think that this is a, a charm offensive. Churchill very rarely made huge blocks of time available you know, to British journalists, but he sees the, the importance of Dorothy Thompson and when she comes to England, I mean, it's an incredible show they put out for her. It's, you know, I, I start my piece with this. It's She's given three suites of the Savoy and a staff, and there's a waiting Daimler with a chauffeur always at the ready for her. Anyone she wants to meet is immediately made available to her. And she wants Americans to, to be more sympathetic to what Londoners are going through. She has an idea that if Americans would see Londoners as being more like like them, more democratic, very friendly, they'll be sympathetic. She wants to impress upon Americans that it's not just aristocrats 
who are going to prey on naive Americans and get them sent off to, to war to die in French fields. You know, she never explicitly says America needs to actually declare war on, on Germany. I mean, I think that was just so far from where, from, you know, what Americans were thinking. I mean, most Americans didn't even want to send any kind of war material to European democracies. I mean, they, they didn't want you know, to do anything that would be seen as belligerent. There were a series of neutrality acts that prevented America from aiding the allies. I think, you know, opinion polls showed that, you know, most Americans were maybe in favor of selling, not even necessarily giving, you know, food to England, but, you know, nothing else. And of course, there's a, you know, whole other history of Churchill begging Roosevelt, send what you can, can you give us some of your oldest, rustiest destroyers? But what Dorothy Thompson is doing is saying, you know, we need to support Roosevelt. We need to, you know, do what we can to help England. She's not saying boots on the ground. I mean, the American reluctance to get involved in another war in Europe is understandable. The people in Britain who welcomed her so warmly saw her as the best way to get the ear of American public opinion, to change American public opinion, which is a sign of what an important figure she was and what an important journalist she was, that if she was, um, not only because she was sympathetic to the British cause, as it were, but also that she was the, she had the, the ear of America. Yeah, I, I think it's hard to, to overstate just how famous she was in the 1930s and, and just how many people read her. We'll be back in a moment, but first I'd like to tell you about the LRB's new Close Readings podcast subscription. If you missed out on signing up to one of our Close Readings courses for this year, don't worry, you can still access the audio for all three series, that's Among the Ancients, Medieval Beginnings and The Long and Short, for just four ninety nine a month or forty nine ninety nine a year. That's 36 episodes in total, which you can listen to in most podcast apps. To sign up, go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. The August 1941 issue of Harper's carried a, a piece of hers that may be her most famous now called Who Goes Nazi? So about a decade ago, my colleague uh, at the LRB, Christian Lawrenson, started one of his pieces. I think it's a review of, of Nathan Englander's stories by talking about this essay. And it it was the first time I read it, thanks to Christian. Yeah, so Dorothy Thompson proposes this dinner party game um, that you can play it. I've played it on the tube. You can play it with your friends. And the concept is, you know, look around the room and everyone swings one way or another. And she goes through various guests at a dinner party. So I, I am quoting Christian. The sportsman bank vice president, Nazi. The threadbare editor, not a Nazi. The scientist masochist wife, Nazi. The chauffeur's grandson serving drinks, not a Nazi. The Jewish speculator who doesn't like Jews, Nazi. In Thompson's calculus, this is Christian, the hyper-competitive and the habitually humiliated, those who haven't anything in them to tell them what they like and what they don't, go Nazi while kind, good, happy, gentlemanly, secure people don't. So Thompson doesn't believe in impersonal historical forces. One's personality 
determines whether someone's going to be a Nazi. Someone who's secure and confident and thoughtful and well-educated, in her mind, will never go Nazi. Someone who's a bit cruel, a bit overly ambitious, humiliated, will go Nazi. And she's firm that it's just a fluke that at her particular moment in history, Jews can't be Nazis. But she underlines again and again in her essay that she thinks Jews are as likely to go Nazi as anybody else. So she she clearly divided the world, or at this point, she appears to divide the world into two kinds of people. There are those who, who go Nazi and those who don't. Um, and she clearly identified herself as one who wouldn't, which goes some way perhaps towards explaining her strong position in, in supporting Roosevelt. But then later that year, end of 1941, Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, America joins the war. And at that point, sort of everyone comes around to her point of view or beyond, and she pivots again, right? That suddenly she's, having been more gung-ho than the rest of America, suddenly she pulls back. Yeah, I mean, part of her problem might be that she's just a little too early, she takes it for granted that America, together with its allies, is going to win this war. And so even before, I think, you know, American troops have you know, reached Europe, she's already thinking about what kind of peace are we going to give the Germans? And she's very opposed to you know, the demand of an unconditional surrender. She thinks this is horribly unfair. And it, it's just not what Americans want to read just weeks after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. I mean, as an experienced and very good journalist, if you're saying the same things everyone else is saying, your journalism doesn't stand out. I mean, there's a sense in which her positions could be described as contrarian. And I'm not suggesting it's necessarily contrarianism for its own sake, although maybe up to a point it was. It's also the case that I think when she looks at Germany, she sees a few bad apples at the top, but otherwise it's oh, the poor, poor Germans and pro-Nazis, you know, who've fallen for you know, this charismatic leader. And I think sometimes the distinction she made between being pro-German and being pro-Nazi uh, collapsed. I keep thinking of the joke, I think this might be Angela Merkel, that says, oh, you know, we, we have, you know, a word in German for people who join the Nazi party, not because they were fascist or racist, but because, you know, they had economic insecurities, so they felt a sense of nationalism. You know, we call those people Nazis. And Dorothy Thompson, you know, she loved Germany. Um, she loved German culture. I, I think she was a little too easy on people who joined the Nazi party. It's, it's sort of bracing reading. I mean, sort of Churchill having welcomed her with open arms in 1941 began to there was a sense that she, what she was writing, what she was saying, was coming close to, to Nazi propaganda. Yeah, there's a memo from the Foreign Office. The Foreign Office is just saying, you know, what's going on? This is a woman who was on the side of the angels for a very long time. And what she's doing now you know, is so far from being helpful. You know, what, what do we do? For several months in 1942, she addresses German audiences in German, over shortwave radio, and she speaks as if to an old friend whom she calls Hans, who's, you know, a German patriot who's been, you know, tricked 
you know, into the war and she's assuring him that, you know, Americans have, you know, no quarrel with Germans, you know, just the leaders. For the British and for Americans, you know, victory is still too far away. I mean, they, they're not quite ready to listen to Dorothy Thompson, you know, lecture them on, on good Germans. I mean, that's not, you know, what they, they want to hear. The war in Europe came to an end in May 1945. And the response was very different from the response after the First World War, that there weren't punitive reparations imposed on Germany, that there was the Marshall Plan and millions of US dollars were poured into West Germany. So there, there is this sense in which, you know, the American policy did follow what she wanted and what she'd promised them. Mm. Thompson had been responding to you know, wasn't out of thin air. I mean, there there had been proposals, I think in like 1943, 1944, you know, for what would happen to Germany after the war. And, you know, they were dramatic. I think, you know, there was one notion that, you know, we're going to take out, you know, any possible industrial center in Germany and just turn it into farmland and all Germans will be peasants. I mean, she's not responding to nothing. I mean, in those bits that you quoted from the, or you, you talked about from the Who Goes Nazi essay, that she, you know, you said she's very happy to see that Jews could as, could be as Nazi as anyone else. And there were, I mean, and you finished the piece with in the in the LRB with a, quoting an anti-Semitic remark that, this is after the Second World War, right, that she she wrote in a letter to Rebecca West. Oh, it's so ugly. So after the war, Thompson's fired. Uh, by the New York Post. And she still continues to get published, but her influence isn't anything like what it had been before the war. And and she becomes very bitter. And she blames the Jews. I mean, th- there's a letter she wrote you know, to, to Rebecca West, where she complains, you know, that she's been, you know, ruthlessly exploited by the Jews. She says that Jews especially exploit your feelings of sympathy and charity and kick you all the harder in the teeth if you cease to be of use to them um, or draw back a little on being exploited. And and there are other you know, things I could have quoted from her, you know, along those lines. And it's, it, it is strange because th- this is a woman who was in so many ways so wonderful before America enters the war. I mean, would, you know, exhaust herself trying to help, you know, Jewish writers escape Nazi Germany, was absolutely instrumental in setting up the the Evian conference that was you know meant to help Jewish refugees escape Germany and Austria but she she's complicated you you quote a friend of hers saying she was like a great ship left stranded on the beach after the tide had gone out i mean there's clearly some truth in that but there are other ways in which you know that question of refugee crises have not gone away mm. i i think she's very prescient when it, it comes to refugees. Um, in other ways, she can seem like a crank. And you know, particularly toward the end of her life, I mean, a lot of her writings are about you know, the downfall of American morality. You know, she's very opposed to divorce, even though she herself was married three times. She's very thoughtful in some ways about Israel-Palestine. I mean, in, in retrospect, she can seem a little naive, sort of going into bed, figuratively speaking, with dictators in the, the Middle East. But she's, she, she's contrarian, as you suggested. She, she's very worried 
that the creation of the state of Israel in, in 48 is going to lead to perpetual war in the Middle East. Yeah, and her position on the need to help Jewish refugees in Europe in the 1940s, actually, you know, she, she wrote about the reasons that the need to help Palestinian refugees after 1948. In that sense, there's a consistency in, sort of, in the support for refugees. She's clear that this isn't a problem for charity and that charity isn't the way out. She thinks that there needs to be, you know, real, proper international coalitions, properly funded and powerful to help refugees, that it shouldn't just be, you know, left to small charities. And you say in the piece that Thompson almost never talked about sexism. She often pretended it didn't affect her, though in one of her columns she admitted that if she had had a daughter, she probably would have told her not to try to have a career. It costs too much. Yeah, I mean, there, there was something hypocritical about how Dorothy Thompson would tell often, you know, other women not to have careers, that they would do more for society to be, you know, good wives and mothers and leave careers to the men. At the same time, she often would say that journalism played to her strengths as a woman. And this might partly have been her trying to make herself or her work seem more feminine. But she would say that, oh, you know, part of the reason she was a good reporter is because, like a lot of women, she was good at getting men to talk about themselves. She was a good listener. And that, like a good society hostess, you know, she was good at keeping up with people, at keeping a good Rolodex, that part of her method as a correspondent would be to take anyone out, you know, for a nice meal, someone with an interesting job, someone with a perspective she thought was worth hearing, and get them to talk, and then she would keep up with them. Deborah Friedel, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Tom. You can read Deborah's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with John Lahr on Buster Keaton, Catherine Nicholson on John Dunn, and Ian Sinclair's descent into London's super sewer. If you have thoughts about this episode or any other, please email us at podcasts at lrb.co.uk. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilborn. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening. <laughs>